I like to walk around my neighborhood and I like to go sit in this park in my neighborhood and what's the name of the park? I mean, when I don't know. <laughs> so why would I, A, why would I tell anyone the name so they could go haunt me? <laughs> haunt so, you. I worried about all the ghosts that listen to our podcast. <laughs> First of all, I don't want any ghosts stalking me in the park. Second of all, it's not like a park that I know uh, that I would know. That It's probably called like a square okay, or something. All right, all right. Um, it's a small park. Grass? But it has like a there's some grass and th- basically the way it's arranged is like a circle with like a monument in the middle i think it's a world war ii monument but i haven't looked at it closely and then there's like a like a big wide sort of like sandy path all the way around with grass patches it's like a yeah like a circular uh, square thing and then there's benches all around that circle path so you, people just like sit and look in and there's like a playground in the middle okay. Anyway, I like to go sit there on the benches, and the people who sit on the benches are all babushki, like exclusively, unless they're older men drinking. Um, And then usually there's like kids and families and stuff running around in the middle. But um, this particular day, there was like this really nice, cute scene of like kids scootering around in the middle in the middle I guess I feel like the middle has like asphalt or something so that you can like scooter easily they weren't scootering on the gravel but anyway um they all had scooters and they're probably like seven six or seven like first grade I don't know I just witnessed this really sweet scene where like this one girl who was really active like she was interacting a lot with this boy and like they even were fighting at one point and I think mostly a play way, like pushing each other. But she just seemed really cool. She was just like really spunky and was like pushing all the boys and stuff. And then there was this boy who I I hadn't really noticed, but he was sitting on a bench also, like kind of near to me, with an older babushka-looking woman with bright orange hair. And he was just sitting there kind of like swinging his legs and like I think he was eating. And the girl who had been, like, the most active scooter girl scooted over to him. And just in that, like, really amazing kid way that, like, it's unclear if they've ever met before. But they, like, could have met or they couldn't have met and it wouldn't matter. She just scooted. She actually, like, scooted off the, like, asphalt platform onto the gravel path. Dropped her scooter. You know how they do that? They're just, like, they're, like, whatever. I just, I got off my scooter and I'm on my way now by foot. (laughs) It's, like. The scooter like the doesn't left exist in, the dust. Any, in any way. Nope. <laughs> um, I can't scoot on the gravel, so off it goes. And just walks over to the boy and she's like, hey, like, come play with us. Come, like, scoot with us. And he just, like, looks kind of, like, shy and, like, looks down his feet. And he's like, I don't have a scooter. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And, and, like, at this point, I'm, like, avidly paying attention because I'm, <laughs> I'm, like, this is so sad. <laughs> I'll go buy him a scooter right now. He's like, I don't have a scooter. And the, like, babushka figure, I don't know if it was actually his grandmother, but the woman sitting next to him was like, he doesn't have a scooter. Like, just repeats what he says. Like, just leave him alone. And the little girl's like, oh, but you can, like, you can use my scooter. And she goes over back to where she flung it, picks it up, brings it over. And I can't really hear what he's saying because it's too far away. I think he's just quietly, like, refusing and being like, no, it's okay. Like, I don't have, it's not my scooter. But she, like, brings over her scooter, 
and she's like doing that kid thing also where she's like she's like been in the process of running around so she's like really excited and she's like well just come school with us come on like why not and then she just like okay and she just leans the scooter like against Aww. him and runs off <laughs> this is the meat of the podcast <laughs> have you ever have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror <laughs> yeah From St. Petersburg and Brooklyn, this is She's in Russia. I'm Smith. And I'm Lily, the Russian one. <laughs> the Russian. <laughs> Lily, the Russian, goes to school. Smith, what are we doing this week? This week, we had the honor of interviewing a very special guest, Alicia Dressman. She's a nuclear policy specialist on U.S. and Russian stockpile modernization. And we just got to talk to her about nuclear stuff. The Russia threat. The Russia threat. Nukes. So you nicely mapped out what we're going to talk about, which we're very appreciative for. I should probably get that map out. Yeah, well, I have it up. Maybe we could start there, Alicia, just like what you saw as the important parts from your perspective. Of the March 1st, yeah. What, what is it called? Is it called the state address? State of, state of the Union kind of thing? Putin unveiled uh, a series of new strategic uh, systems, some that fall in a category that could be called strategic. Others had more, perhaps, tactical elements to them. It fell in an awkward time frame because you had the Trump administration putting together its nuclear posture review. Can you explain real quick what that is? Oh, yes. It's a statement of the declaratory policy of the United States. So basically, when you have, as far as like the, the numerical advantage, half of the world's arsenal between the U.S. and Russia, it seeks to clarify to adversaries and to allies how and when those systems would be used in defense of the country and what threats would be addressed, how they would be addressed. It's the most explicit nuclear posture review of its class of, of the P5. I mean, I say that terminology. I mean, China really doesn't call it a nuclear posture review. The French don't call it that. But of all of the declaratory pol policies of the P5, the United States is the most explicit in, in defining, okay, we have a nuclear triad. How would we use our submarines? Uh, they have a second strike role in, in deterrence. Okay, how would we use our ICBMs? Oh, they have a first strike role in deterrence because we, we have a first use policy, et cetera. So that's kind of what the, the nuclear posture review sets out to do. Every administration, every presidential administration has a shot at their own personal Jesus, no, their own personal NPR. Um, and this is Trump's and NPR came at a time similar to Putin's unveiling of uh, these new uh, strategic systems. And so it was really interesting to see in the Senate for the last you know, few months to see these senators kind of 
wrap the purpose of the nuclear posture review around Putin's PowerPoint presentation, even though certain weapons, such as the low-yield low SLBM sub-launched cruise missile, have been discussed for about a year out. So when you're talking about the response, the Russian response to the American response, to the American response to the Russian response, all of that dialectic, Putin's presentation came at a very mediagenic time when, when the Trump administration is creating its nuclear policy and, and announcing it to the world to unveil these new strategic systems. A lot of people saw that as kind of interwoven within the American legislative cycle, right? Not realizing that that actually the Russians might have their own agenda and they might not be looking to the Americans for direction on everything as, as far as the way that they signal with their uh, nuclear weapons. But that's certainly how it was uh, how it was received in D.C. this last spring. The the speech that Putin gave, uh, as far as I understand, more than a third of the speech was devoted to talking about this new new developments in strategic weaponry, nuclear weaponry. And would you be able to like break it down, like what what was new or what exactly was said? If you've been watching this field for a while, like I have, and you have very few friends, and uh, you really don't have a life, I mean, not much of the systems were, I would say, if you would call them new, then they were new in the sense that they had been formally acknowledged as a project in development by the state. If you look at any Russian military forum on the web, like Russian language forum. A lot of these systems have been rumored for years. Uh, I think of the status six system, the nuclear torpedo, which was first control leaked by a Pierre Canal cameraman in November of 2015. This, uh, this general sitting at this presidential council committee meeting in Sochi showed a slide to a Pierre Canal cameraman of this nuclear torpedo and had all the specs, pretty much everything, but like the Amazon delivery code or whatever. I mean, just had everything about this. It was very obvious it was a control leak. And that, that weapon system had been rumored before that control leak on, uh, when I say military forums, I, I mean, very informal, you know, the, the, room, the rumor intelligence, the rumor um, had been stirring for, for years before that. So a lot of these systems, especially Sarmats, the heavy ICBM that's going to replace Voivoda or uh, the uh, Satan heavy ICBM from the Soviet era, I mean, that's been openly discussed in like a Ria Novosti or Siska Gazeta or any of those Russian language channels for some time now as well. Um, so what I found exceptional was this acknowledgement, this exhibition of what had previously been kind of rumored or sensitive information and, and for Putin to acknowledge that, yes, status, the status system is in existence, uh, we are developing it, to kind of put a stamp on it. After that system had been in the background for a long time, Putin was finally harnessing the value of signaling to adversaries that, that comes with transparency in your arsenal, which Russia is not 
a real fan of most of the time. Um, the fact that he had made that decision that said, okay, we've had the, uh, some of these systems that have been um, kind of submerged from a public view for a while that we're now going to unleash them. I think that was more significant, the managed transparency measure, that was more significant than the attributes of the weapons systems themselves. I mean, Michael mm -hmm. Kaufman of CNA, um, Center for Naval Analysis Arlington, uh, at another CSIS event uh, last week in D.C., was talking about status six, uh, the nuclear torpedo, uh, as being a third strike system that you would perhaps have like a first strike with ICBMs from Russia. You know, U.S. has a has a has a second response maybe with a, a sub-launched ballistic missile, and then status six, a nuclear torpedo, because its speed it actually takes like several days almost to, to reach the target, uh, you know, traveling underwater, uh, that it would be a third strike, that it would come after everyone's dead and strike whatever was left. Mm. Uh, just, just, just talking about how some of the attributes of these new weapon systems are really questionable. I mean, you have Kinjal, an air-launched ballistic missile, which is basically an Iskander, uh, Iskander M a short-range ballistic missile that's being strapped onto uh, a Sukhoi jet. I mean, it just looks horrific. It looks like someone stole a Christmas tree and they, like, shoved it in the back of a Cessna. Um, I mean, the, the proportions are just real. I mean, it's just, it's an ugly, it's an ugly missile. I'm not a fan of the Kindle. Can you, can you, because we don't know, and we're assuming most of our listeners don't know either. Could you just, for that example, like, take those different weapons and explain kind of in basic bitch terms what they are? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you would have, I guess, with the the air launch ballistic missile could be used as a standoff weapon. Um, if you're like if you're trying to protect you know, your territory, Russia's has in its military doctrine that it will defend inter territorial integrity, uh, defend the territory of the Russian Federation really at all costs. And so. You know the, the basing options for Kinjal, the air-launched ballistic missile, probably going to we're going to look at maybe Moscow or, or St. Petersburg, but I mean it will be somewhere at the you know at the territory, at the borderlines of Russian territory, um, because it's you know traditionally used as a as a standoff weapon, a really old standoff weapon. We gave up we gave up air-launched ballistic missiles. We did I mean we never pursued that. Uh, as far as the, the nuclear torpedo um, and, and that having any value, any deterrent value, I think resuming these Cold War weapons like Status uh, 6, I think that more has to do with signaling the ability of, and this is, this is me just kind of bullshitting to be honest, signaling the ability of, of Russia to perform in research and development and to, I don't know, still be innovative. I mean, I wonder how much, how much of these programs like a statistics that really doesn't add to the deterrent value, but it keeps a lot of scientists busy developing this project and how much that of that is simply keeping Russian scientists from going to China because we've already had some engineers that worked on uh, the Sukhoi engine. They've been bought out by China. 
so I, I wonder like, you know, how much of that is. So, I, I mean, as far as like what, how these, how, I mean, the Sarmat ICBM, obviously that's, that's, that plays a very clear role. I mean, Russia has a first strike policy like we do. Um, they would envisage preemptive strike if they felt that they were under attack then they would take a first strike. What would be an example of them feeling like they're under attack? Uh, well, they have early warning radar, um, as we do. It's a little more decrepit. They're working on improving uh, the early warning radar satellites. If they had sensed an incoming attack, an incoming nuclear strike from the uh, continent of the United States, then their policy gives them the, the flexibility to launch uh, for a strike. Whereas, for instance, say, a China um, has uh, a no-first-use policy. policy. So, so the setup there is that China would wait until they suffer a nuclear attack and then they would respond in kind versus trying to stop an incoming attack. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that's a policy that might change with the development of uh, MIRVing ICBMs. Um, they've just successfully MIRVed. Uh, an ICBM. China's uh, not my sandbox, but uh, I do know that they have uh, MIRV capability and they're developing advanced conventional capabilities such as hypersonic glide vehicles, boost glide weapons that would enable with conventional, uh, a conventional warhead, we're not talking about nuclear, that would enable um, e- evasion of uh, ballistic missile defense systems and uh, attacking you know, command and control. And so they're, they're developing basically what I'm saying is they have a no first use policy, but the China is developing weapons that would perhaps eventually down the road commit itself, de facto commit itself to a first use policy because have the ability. What, what is, is sorry, mean? what does Merving mean? <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, we don't understand no, the vocabulary. No, really I'm I'm realizing how much of a bastard I am. No, I just I just go I just walk the streets and, and mumble to myself. You know. <laughs> Merving is uh, when you have uh, an ICBM can carry one warhead, it can the warhead's on a reentry vehicle. And so that's the R V reentry vehicle. Then the MIRV comes from if you have multiple reentry vehicles um, on an ICBM and all of those reentry vehicles are independently targeted. So instead of going to the same patch of concrete on the Arbat, maybe they go to, I don't know, Kitai Garad and then the Arbat and then another place. You know, they're, they're, they're independently targeted, they go to different can go to different targets, and that's mer- uh, that's a merved ICBM. Okay, so so just to walk us through this, so when an ICBM is is like launched, it goes outside of the atmosphere. Is that right? Right. Okay, so then when it's coming back for like reentry into the atmosphere, it's still one ICBM, but then the the head like multiplies into different ones that go to different places depending on where they're targeted. That go to different neighborhoods in Moscow. <laughs> um, right. yeah, you're, you're, ask, you're asking um, for, for, I think, self-interest there. Um, no. Let's just say that what reenters the Earth's atmosphere is simply reentry vehicles. Okay, so in the case of like an ICBM that's been merved, that's more dangerous because it's hard to tell where those individual reentry vehicles are targeted? Yes, I mean, this is why um, most... I would say the holy grail of 
missile defense technology is boost phase intercept. You know, you're not you're not going to try to chase all of the warheads as they're coming, you know, reentering the Earth's atmosphere. You're going to try to intercept the ICBM, you know, it's in its flight path. I I have a question that is a lot more broad and forgive me if it's like extremely boring, but I I want to come back to like the specifics of like what's happening right now and what what Putin specifically said and how the U.S. reacted. And we definitely want to come back to that. But would you be able to give like a more big picture overview of how particularly the, the relationship between the U.S. and Russia nuclear policies have changed since the Cold War or has there been a change specifically since we've seen increased tensions between the two countries um, and what people are calling Cold War II, which is like since Crimea in 2014. Do you see a similar pattern happening in like the relationship, the, the nuclear relationship between the two countries? I was actually in D.C. in 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine. And if you're talking about major ships in U.S.-Russian bilateral relations in the sphere of arms control, since 2014. I would say that the dominant trend is the invention of theories to accommodate for lack of NATO cohesion and strategy, theories that define Russian military doctrine or confuse and confound Russian military doctrine, such as Grasimov doctrine, hybrid warfare theory, information warfare. I think that these constructs have really undermined the ability of the U.S. policy community and the government to face the Russian threat in a way that is objective and sane. And I think no greater have they erred than in the interpretation of Russian military doctrine towards Russia's nuclear posture and what it says about Russia's nuclear posture, I think this is particularly dangerous. You know, Russia has a national security strategy and they have a military doctrine. Um, these are both documents that exist on the internet, in Russian and in English. They're accessible. You could click through a Wikipedia article and find Nikolai Petrusha's Security Council website and all of its grand grandeur and click through and find what you need in maybe about 10 minutes of research. And instead of using the written declaratory policy of Russia as the guideline for understanding Russian doctrine, what I'm seeing is using statements to the press from, say, Dmitry Rogozin, maybe Peskov or Pushkov or these figures in Putin's circle, Krakiev uh, uh, of Russian strategic forces, see him quoted a lot, or maybe one of the foreign ministry guys who doesn't really matter, like Ryabkov or Ulyanov, and constructing Russia's declaratory policy and its nuclear posture, which is a very fixed thing. It's a very, it, it, it's not something you update like your Facebook status. A nuclear posture for a global nuclear power like a U.S. or a Russia, that's something that you want to communicate to your adversaries and allies in a very fixed format only maybe once every few years. And 
the fact that I'm seeing, and I'm not just talking about think tankers, no offense. <laughs> I don't think we're a think tank. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, well, um, I mean, there's so much ego built in people that are actually, they're not in government. I mean, the N, the, the N in NGO means non-government. That means you don't have a clearance, sweetheart, you know. Um, and I'm seeing people who are actually uh, like ranking uh, defense planners in DOD who are using public statements from the Kremlin glitterati to create an idea of Russia's nuclear posture without, say, other more objective means such as analyzing Russia's, uh, Russia's exercises looking at developments in Russia's defense industrial base, looking at how it's developing and reaching project milestones in, uh, in, in nuclear modernization, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can evaluate in, a, in, a, in an objective and clear-minded way what Russia's intentions are, and they give us a, lot of, a whole lot of data for evaluating that. But instead, I'm seeing defense planners in D.C. and congressmen going for the most juicy, radioactive soundbite from types like Dmitry Kislyov, uh, who live for television. Like, that's their only job, is to uh, look mediagenic to the public. And so they're, they're creating, like, you know, I see... Um, these these defense planners creating an idea of Russian military doctrine from media muppets, basically. Do you think? Do you think this like? Well, first of all, is this like inference of Russia's nuclear policy from you know like media whores? Is that like a new thing? Is that like it, something that's happened increased in the past few years? I like referring to Peskov as a media whore. It's like really hilarious. Well, he, he does know how to how to salsa, right? I mean, he does have kind of like that that's that kind of sleazy Vegas croupier, you know, if they're working working via tables. Um, I want to say that it was different ten years ago uh, when I first uh, came to DC and I lobbied. We were lobbying for a follow-on treaty to new to to start. This is before it was New Start, and this is two thousand eight, and. At the time, Condoleezza Rice was our Secretary of State, and Condi, you know, despite obviously her reputation, uh, she was actually a Sovietologist. Um, she she rose up through you know, the ranks of the expert community in the '80s, and she speaks Russian. She had a good rapport with her opposite in the Foreign Ministry at the time, Igor Ivanov, and I feel that you just had more more rush expertise in government and not like you didn't in the in the Obama administration not saying at all but across party aisles I think 10 years ago you still had uh, Richard Luger who was the other half of the non Luger clear security initiative coming out of the Cold War which is just stellar bipartisan initiative to focus on securing loose uh, missiles and fissile material and all of the you know security issues that came from the dissolution of the USSR nuclear power and that that was an initiative that was helmed you know partly by republicans and so 10 years ago you had 
members of Congress with institutional knowledge of the Cold War. They had a, a real interest in firefighting relations with, with Russia in a cooperative realm. We used to even have DOE uh, Rosatom, or sorry, Department of Energy Rosatom cooperation, lab-to-lab cooperation. And that was something that was supported by Republicans and Democrats forever until, again, until like the last few years. And so I think that's all disintegrated. And I'm not a cultural critic. I'm not a I actually really don't even follow electoral politics that much. Unfortunately, I don't have that that taste or, or that expertise for electoral politics. So I can't tell you what created the way we live now. <laughs> but I would say that you we lost all of the centrist Republicans that had a vested interest in preserving the reputation of American foreign policy, the institution of American foreign policy, and they've been replaced by media horse, our media horse. <laughs> you take like a, a Senator Tom Cotton, who it's, it would seem his role on the Senate Armed Service Committee is to look like this. I don't know. You could even call it like he has this uh, uh, dominatrix role and he's cracking a whip over Russia's head and he's he's the one who's going to hold order and morale. And it's all about punishing Russia. It's a very performative outrage. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the theater of outrage in D.C. is something that I don't remember in 2008 being in D.C. And in 2008, we had the Six Days War. <laughs> In Georgia, right? I mean, we had rumors of the an INF or the violation of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty. I remember receiving that feedback from congressional staffers. They were saying, "Well, we'd love to do a follow-on treaty for start, but you know, there's rumors that Russia's violated the INF Treaty." I mean, so we had all a lot of the long-standing disputes today in 2018. I know the invasion of Ukraine is huge, and I'm not trying to treat that as some like minor obstacle or whatever, like someone sneezed, right? No, I mean, it's huge. But we have a lot of the outstanding disputes and rifts with Russia in 2018 that I saw, I witnessed, first coming to D.C. in 2008. The theater of outrage. I'm going to remember that phrase. That was excellent. <laughs> You mentioned a while ago this thing called the Gerasimov Doctrine, and that term has been floating around. We haven't actually ever talked about it on the show. Could you just summarize what that is and how it became so popular? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I remember I remember receiving this text alert. This is actually not an exciting story. Anyway, I'll say it. I remember receiving this, this text alert in, like, March of 2014 or whatever, uh, I was living in south of Pentagon at the time, and I had this awful commute. <laughs> this took forever. And so I had a long time to to read and uh, ingest all of the, the garbage in my inbox. And I got this, like, flurry of emails and tweets about this chart, this magnificent chart from Voyanaya Promotioni Courier, the courier of the military-industrial complex, Vipaka, or VPK. And it's this online websites, a really great resource, actually. I read it. It uh, has a bulletin that comes out weekly on Wednesday. 
And they were discussing this chart from this article by Valery Grasimov, and it was dated February 2013. And I vaguely remembered reading it because, I mean, I read it weekly. So I was like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that chart. And I actually didn't recognize the chart or the contents of the article from the flurry of reaction on Twitter. I was like, what What are they talking about? Oh, it's just that old article where Grasimov's talking about the different stages of conflict. It was like really boring and they're making it sound so sexy. And then I thought, <laughs> it occurred to me, I just thought in a flood, I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Unleash the dogs of war. <laughs> this is this is it. I mean, they're, they found the nut graph of the next, you know, three or four, Four grant cycles, um, and and to go back to the to the article, Gorasimov was discussing what he saw as America's strategy of warfare. So he's actually talking about the United States. That's a way that he's trying to envisage the different stages of conflict, and it's kind of like an expansion on uh, Clausewitz. You know, politics is uh, war by different means. And looking at the different ways that military stage war, I mean, if you look at the strategic forces, uh, Russian strategic forces dictionary, they have a definition of war, and it you know includes political, economic means, other ways besides open conflict where you invade or attack an adversary. There's other ways of, of staging war, and that's really what. Gorosmo's article was talking about. And again, it was so boring that I just completely ignored it until I opened up my my laptop on that train. I, I don't know, it's, it's a really boring anecdote, but it's just so it's just so funny that an article, something that I just slept on and I just didn't just didn't think anything of it. And now it's everywhere. It's mm-hmm. it's kind you know, it's kind of like this annoying bar fly that you're just you just go up and get your whiskey and you kind of like, like, Oh, this, this schmuck. Oh, he's, he's sitting on me again. Oh, I'm, I'm just going to go get my whiskey and go back to my friends and I'll never see him again or whatever. And then just every weekend you go to your whiskey and the bar fly is there and the bar fly has friends. And the bar fly has the New York times. <laughs> exactly. The bar flies on blast. Um, it, no, it, it, it just is a nightmare come true. And the uh, fact that you see uh, NATO throwing resources at studying hybrid warfare and uh, all of these hucksters. I mean, there's a whole list and they've all blocked me on Twitter. Michael Weiss, Molly McHugh, John Schindler, Eric Garland. Gems. <laughs> gems, right? That they're making a killing. I mean, I can't. You know, I guess I should uh, hate the game and not the player. Um, but they're making a killing off of this idea that Russia has invented a new way of waging warfare. I mean, and if you think of, we've had Photoshop since Anne of Cleves' court painter sent a more comely image to the court of King Henry VIII, so much that he wanted to propose to her. So we've had Photoshop for a while, right? You know, we've had psyops since the Babington plot under Queen Elizabeth. We've had all of these ways of waging war for several centuries, millennia even, and I don't think that, you know, Russia's pulling anything out of a hat. I think that certain theories as hybrid warfare 
give the NATO and EU a little bit of slack in responding to Russia to say it's not about us, um, that our that our adversary is so indefatigable, so ingenious that we're we're simply at, at, at a wit's end and tell us tell us more about uh, Russian mind control or whatever. I my I have a question that goes back to a phrase you used um, a little while ago, but I'm trying to remember the con- the context was when you were saying that like the the what we're calling the media whores now of Russia, like um, U.S. politicians are paying more attention to them than to actual written policy stuff like that. And then you said like in addressing the Russia threat, could you explain what the Russia threat is? The Russian threat, as I see it today, is one that you have a nuclear power with increasingly limited resources and limited market access uh, because of sanctions. It's overstretched in wars on two fronts in Ukraine and Syria. Ukraine, I think, is more manageable as a frozen conflict for Russia. Russia is going to get its ass kicked in Syria six ways to Sunday. Um, They're in a proxy war that was a very difficult choice for the Obama administration, but standing on the sidelines somewhat of that war, as we did in in the Obama administration. What we're seeing now with Russia, that possibly would have happened being in the crosshairs of competing interests, you know, Iran doing nation building in northern Syria, Turkey, taking pots at Iran. You know, you have um, Hezbollah and every you know, paramilitary group may be backed by the Saudis. All of those competing interests are now on Russia's plate, and it's it's at capacity. I think what it thought was going to be simply a catwalk for its new fighters and air defense systems uh, has now evolved into a, a quagmire. In, in brief, it's overstretched in Ukraine and in, in Syria. It's over leveraged with China. So the dependence on China is a cause for concern. But at a time when the Eastern Military District, its Eastern Front, is completely depleted and vacant. And so there's, it's feeling very vulnerable uh, where that relationship stands. And I think out of this greater picture of vulnerability that I'm trying to draw, I'm saying that there's so much potential for miscalculation and miscommunication between the United States and Russia. I think that policymakers in D.C. have this illusion that they're dealing with an adversary that has approached or even surpassed parity with the United States in terms of nuclear conventional power. I have a gut feeling that there's a lot of very powerful people in D.C. who see Russia as an equal player on a lot of fronts. For instance, we have dragged out the INF violation dispute into the light. We've used the press, senators, official statements, it's at this point where it's it's used to signal our own strength, you know, the ability 
to let Russia know that, hey, we could create an INF, an INF missile in our sleep. And, you know, you're thinking of violating the treaty. All, all of these legal, I mean, to- completely legal measures of kind of taunting and baiting Russia into submission tell me that military planners in D.C. believe they're facing an adversary that has parity in, in, in strength and, and, and capacity. I mean, that's, that's really, really what I'm saying. And, and, it, and it's terrifying, I think. I don't think they understand that they're dealing with a state power that's calculating with a lot of insecurity and, and acting out of insecurity. I don't mean to say that we need to coddle Russia, that we need to give her everything she asks for. And when you have uh, no communication with an adversary, as is the case right now, because our State Department is vacant and you know NATO and Russia don't talk to each other, haven't for six years now, when you, when you don't have that kind of communication and you're essentially communicating through official statements, through uh, Senate testimonies, through back channels, and on even the uh, even the embassy expulsions. Um, it's just another great, you know, it's another great example, you know, that happened on the day of this. It happened after the weekend of that horrific uh, mall fire in uh, Siberia. So yeah, it, it just there's a lot of there's a lot of moves that I'm seeing from DC policy planners that tell me that they was responding to the idea of the Russian military threat, but this construct and not to get too postmodernist here, but <laughs> this construct doesn't really reflect a lot of hard facts. It's more uh, a very convenient construct for those who want to land contracts for say, a Lockheed Martin or, a, you know, Raytheon. Okay. One, one last question, the, the last bullet point on the list you sent over. So, so yeah, you're mentioning that uh, Senate testimony suggests that the United States might leave key arms controls that we have with Russia. Can you just explain, like, briefly what testimonies you're talking about? So one of the obstacles, when I lobbied for New Start back in 2009 and 2010, one of the obstacles that I remember hearing about from the GOP senators, that uh, the, the congressional staff that I lobbied, was tactical nuclear weapons. It was on everyone's lips. They were concerned that Russia has this massive unidentified tranche of tactical nuclear weapons in consolidated storage and made many senators anxious about entering into signing on to the new Strategic Arms Direction Treaty. There was a bilateral consultative commission that happened at the time to discuss, you know, the U.S. and Russia coming together saying, hey, if we're going to have this treaty, you know, what are the outstanding issues? And obviously, you know, Russia always comes with, well, you have their missile defense in Europe and your NATO nukes in Europe, and we don't like that. And, you know, the U.S. discussed uh, the issue of tactical nuclear weapons systems, many of these systems that Actually, I'm pretty sure they probably they probably discussed some of the systems that were in uh, Putin's PowerPoint that we talked about earlier. And so I, 
I, I believe that a lot of uh, senators went grumble, grumble. We don't like this this treaty. Uh, they made kind of amends, like the best bad deal they could get. They ratified it, but they submerged a lot of enmity and hate of the treaty, and it all centered on tactical nuclear weapons. And so now what we're seeing is, especially with Putin uh, declassifying a lot of these strategic systems, we're seeing them weaponize that PowerPoint. Effectively, they're saying that uh, Russia is increasing the number of tactical nuclear weapons and they're creating uh, new warheads for their TNWs. So they're modernizing their, their non-strategic weapons. And all of these are cause you know, for concern that they would have with this non-deployed hedge and with new non-strategic nuclear weapons that they would have an advantage over the United States that would prevent us from signing on, you know, a follow-on treaty to New START because they believe that Russia will be able to nullify our advantage in conventional forces, advanced conventional weapons in in all legs of the triad. They're going to be able to uh, neutralize that strategic advantage with non-strategic weapons. And I'm sorry, I just had to kind of giggle when I heard that. That's one treaty that could be on the chopping block. It's not It's not as likely. The INF Treaty is closer to the chopping block, I think. I mean, the INF Treaty has been bathed in um, lighter fluid. It's ready to roast because... I haven't seen a Russian response to the pressure from, you know, American media or from USG, United States government, that signifies that they're ready to come to any reconciliation over the violation. They just keep slinging threats back at uh, the United States. What, What was the initial violation? The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty it means that you cannot uh, deploy a, a nuclear or a conventional missile within that range. So there's several theories abound into candidate systems for a missile that could have been developed and then deployed or maybe modified and, and deployed. But that would that's we're I mean, we're looking at a missile that would you know be in a in an intermediate range missile. And yeah, the, the, what people kind of forget actually is that yeah, it is, they was looking at covering that entire class. It's not, it's not really the, the, the nuclear component is significant, but it's, it's more of the threat to uh, Europe. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. As always, be sure to follow us on Twitter telegram and arena at she's in russia if you have a question for us about russia or anything else really we'll answer whatever question give us a call at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six if you're based outside of the u.s feel free to call us at she's in russia on skype and leave a message there check out our website and subscribe to our monthly image-based newsletter and we will see you next week